Chapter Six of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Six, Book One. By the end of another six months, Littleton's work was practically completed. Only the finishing touches to the interior decoration remained to be done. The members of Rev. Mr. Glynn's congregation, including Mrs. Hollett Taylor, were thoroughly satisfied with the appearance of the new church. It was attractive in its lines, yet it was simple, and consequently in keeping with the resources of the treasury. There was no large bill for extras to be audited, as possibly would have been the case had a hard-headed designer like Mr. Pierce been employed. The committee felt itself entitled to the congratulations of the community, nor was the community on the whole disposed to grumble, for home talent had been employed by the architect, under rigorous supervision, to be sure so that poor material and slapdash workmanship were out of the question. Still payments had been prompt, and Benham was able to admire competent virtue. The church was a monument of suggestion in various ways, artistic and ethical and it shone neatly with babcock varnish. One morning, Selma set forth by agreement with Littleton in order to inspect some fresco work. Muriel Grace was ailing slightly, but as she would be home by midday, she bade the hired girl be watchful of baby and kept her appointment. The child had grown dear to her, for Muriel was a charming little dot, and Selma had already begun to enjoy the maternal delight of human doldrum an extravagance in which she was lavishly encouraged by her husband. Babcock was glad of any excuse to spend money on his daughter, who seemed to him from day to day a greater marvel of precocity. Such a child as became Selma's beauty and cleverness, and his own practical common sense. Selma was in a pensive frame of mind this morning. Two days before, she had read a paper at the Institute on Motherhood, which had been enthusiastically received. Mrs. Earle had printed a flattering item concerning it in the Benham Sentinel. It was agreeable to her to be going to meet Littleton, for he was the most interesting masculine figure in her life. She was sure of Lewis. He was her husband, and she knew herself to be the apple of his eye. But she knew exactly what he was going to say before he said it, and much of what he said grated on her. She was almost equally sure of Littleton, that is, of his admiration. His companionship was a constant pleasure to her. As a married woman, and as a Christian and American woman, she desired no more than this. But on the other hand, she would fain have this admiring companionship continue, and yet it could not. Littleton had told her the day before that he was going back to New York, and that it would be doubtful if he would return. She would miss him. She would have the Institute, and Mrs. Earle still, but her life would be less full. Littleton was waiting for her at the church entrance. She followed him down the nave to the chancel, where she listened dreamily to his presentation of the merits of the new decoration. He seemed inclined to talk, and from this presently branched off to describe with enthusiasm the plates of a French book on interior architecture which he had recently bought as a long-resistant but triumphant piece of extravagance. Mechanically, they turned from the chancel and slowly made the round of the aisles. A short silence preceded his professional ardor. His current of thought, in its reversion to home matters, 
had reminded him afresh of what was perpetually this morning uppermost in his consciousness. His coming departure. Now, he said abruptly, is the most favorable opportunity I shall have, Mrs. Babcock, to tell you how much I am your debtor. I shan't despair of our meeting again, for the world is small, and good friends are sure to meet sooner or later. But the past is secure to me at any rate. If this church is in some measure what I have dreamed and wished it to be, if my work with all its faults is a satisfaction to myself, I wish you to know how much you have contributed to make it what it is. Words were a melody to Selma's ears, and she listened greedily. Littleton paused as one seriously moved will pause before giving the details of an important announcement. She, thinking he had finished, interjected with a touch of modesty. I'm so glad, but my suggestions and criticisms have not been what I meant them to be. It was all new to me, you know. Oh, yes, it hasn't been so much what you have said in words which has helped me, though that has always been intelligent and uplifting. I did not look for technical knowledge. You do not possess that, of course. There are women in New York who would be able to confuse you with their familiarity of these things. And yet it is by way of contrast with those very women, fine women too in their way, that you have been my good angel. There is no harm in saying that. I should be an ingrate, surely, if I would not let you know that your sane, simple outlook upon life, your independent vision, has kept my brain clear and my soul free. I am a better artist and a better man for the experience. Good-bye, and may all happiness attend you. If once in a while you should find time to write to a struggling architect named Littleton, he will be charmed to do your bidding, to send you books, and to place his professional knowledge at your service. Good-bye. He held out his hand with frank effusion. He was obviously happy at having given utterance to his sense of obligation. Selma was tingling from head to foot, and a womanly blush was on her cheek though the serious seraph spoke in her words and eyes. She felt moved to a wave of unreserved speech. What you have said is very interesting to me. I wish to tell you how much I, too, have enjoyed our friendship. The first time we met, I felt sure we should be sympathetic, and we have been, haven't we? One of the fine things about friendships between men and women in this country is that they can really get to know each other without harm to each other, isn't it? It's such a pleasure to know people, really, and I feel as if I have known you, as if we have known each other, really. I've never known any man exactly in that way, and I have always wanted to. Except, of course, my husband, and he's extremely different. That is, his tastes are not like yours. It's a happiness to me to feel that I have been of assistance to you in your work, and you have been equally helpfully to me in mine. As you say, I have never had the opportunity to learn the technical parts of art, and your books have instructed me as to that. I have never been in New York, but I understand what you meant about your friends, those other women. I suppose society people must be constantly diverted from serious work, from the intellectual and spiritual life. Oh, yes, we ought to write. Our friendship mustn't languish. We must let each other know what we are thinking and doing. Good-bye. As Selma walked along the street, her heart was in her stomach. She felt pity for herself. To just the right person, she would have confessed the discovery that she had made a mistake and tied herself for life to the wrong man. But it was not so much that she'd fancied Littleton which distressed her, for indeed she was but mildly conscious of infatuation. What disturbed her was the contrast between him and Babcock, which definite separation now forced upon her attention. 
an indefinable impression that Littleton might think less of her if she were to state this sole truth, had restrained her at the last moment from disclosing the secret. Not for an instant did she entertain the idea of being false to Lewis. Confession would have been but a dissertation on the inexorable irony of fate, calling only for sympathy, and in no way derogating from her dignity and self-respect as a wife. Still, she had restrained herself and stopped just short of the confidence. He was gone, and she would probably not see him again for years. That was endurable. Indeed, a recognition of the contrary would not have seemed to her consistent with wifely virtue. What brought the tears to her eyes was the vision of continued wedlock until death intervened with a husband who could not understand. Could she bear this? Must she endure it? There was but one answer. She must. At the thought, she bit her lip with the intensity and sternness of a martyr. She would be faithful to her marriage vows, but she would not let Lewis's low aims interfere with the free development of her own life. It was afternoon when she reached home. She was met at the door by the hired girl with the worried ejaculation that baby was choking. The doctor was hastily summoned. He at once pronounced that Muriel Grace had membranous croup and was desperately ill. Remedies of various sorts were tried, and a consulting physician called. But when Babcock returned from his office, her condition was evidently hopeless. The child died in the early night. Selma was relieved to hear the doctor tell her husband that it was a malignant case from the first, and that nothing could have averted the result. In response to questions from Lewis, however, she was obliged to admit that she had not been at home when the acute symptoms appeared. This afforded Babcock an outlet for his suffering. He spoke to her roughly for the first time in his life, bitterly suggesting neglect on her part. You knew she wasn't all right this morning, yet you had to go fiddle-faddling with that architect instead of staying at home where you belonged. And now she's dead. My little girl! My little girl! And the big man burst out sobbing. Selma grew deadly pale. No one had ever spoken to her like that before in her life. To the horror of her grief was added the consciousness that she was being unjustly dealt with. Lewis had heard the doctor's statement, and yet he dared address her in such terms, as if the loss of the child did not fall equally on her. "'If it were to be done over again, I should do just the same,' she answered with righteous quietness. "'To all appearances she had nothing but a little cold. You have no right to lay the blame on me, her mother.' At the last word she looked ready to cry, too. Babcock regarded her like a miserable tame bull. I didn't mean to, he blubbered. She's taken away from me, and I'm so wretched that I don't know what I'm saying. I'm so sorry, Selma. When he held out his arms to her, she was ready to go to them, for the angel of death had entered her home and pierced her heart, where it should be most tender. She loved her baby, yet when she had time to think, she was not sure that she wished to have another. When the bitterness of his grief had passed away, that was the hope which Lewis ventured to express, at first in a whisper, and later with reiterated boldness. Selma acquiesced externally, but she had her own opinion. Certain things which were not included in mother lore had been confided by Mrs. Margaret Rodney Earle, by word of mouth, in the fullness of their mutual soul-scourings, and had remained pigeonholed for future reference in Selma's inner consciousness. Another baby just at this time meant interference with everything elevating, 
there was time enough in a year or two when she had established herself more secure in the social sphere of benham she would present her husband with a second child it was best for them both to wait for her success was his success but it would be useless to try to make that clear to him in his present mood so she put away her baby things dropping tears over the little socks and other reminders of her sorrow and took up her life again keeping her own counsel the sympathy offered her was an interesting experience. Mrs. Earle came to her at once and took her to her bosom. Mrs. Taylor sent her flowers with a kind note, which set Selma thinking whether she ought not to buy morning note-paper, and within a week she received a visit of condolence from Mr. Glynn. Rather a ghastly visit. Ghastly because Lewis sat through it all with red eyes, very much as though he were listening to a touching exhortation in church. To be sure, he gripped the pastor's hand like a vice, and at the end thanked him for coming, but his silent, afflicted presence had interfered with the free interchange of thought, which would have been possible had she been alone with the clergyman. The subject of death and the whole train of reflections incident to it were uppermost in her mind, and she would have been glad to probe the mysteries of the subject by controversial argument, instead of listening to hearty, sonorous platitudes. She listened rather contemptuously, for she recognized that Mr. Glynn was saying the stereotyped thing, stereotyped way, without realizing that it was nothing but, nothing but sacerdotal path, little adapted to an intelligent soul. What was suited to Lewis was not fit for her, and yet her baby's death had served to dissipate somewhat the immediate discontent which she felt with her husband. His strong grief had touched her in spite of herself and though she blamed him still for his inconsiderate accusation. She was fond of him, as she might have been fond of some loving Newfoundland, which splendid and awkward bulk caressed her and licked her hand. It was pleasant enough to be in his arms, for the touch of a man, even the wrong man, was at times a comfort. She took up again with determined interest her relations to the Institute, joining additional classes and pursuing a variety of topics of study in regard to some of which she consulted Littleton. She missed his presence less than she had expected, especially after they had begun to correspond and were able to keep in touch by letter. His letters were delightful. They served her in her lecture courses, for they so clearly and concisely expressed her views that she was able to use long extracts from them word for word, and every now and then they contained a respectful allusion which showed that he still retained a personal interest in her. So the week slipped away, and she was reasonably happy. She was absorbed, and there was nothing new to mar the tenor of her life, though she was vaguely conscious that the loss of their little girl had widened the breach between her and her husband, widened it for the reason that now, for the first time, he perceived how lonely he was. The baby had furnished him with constant delight and preoccupation. He had looked forward all day to seeing it at night, and questions relating to it had supplied a never-ceasing small change of conversation between him and her. He had let her go her way with a smile on his face. Selma did not choose to dwell on the situation, but it was obvious that Lewis continued to look glum, and that there were apt to be long silences between them at meals. Now and again he would show some impatience at the continuous reoccurrence of the institute classes, as a bar to some project of domesticity or recreation as though she had not been an active member of the Institute before Baby was born. One of the plans of Mrs. Earle was most interested was a Congress of Women's Clubs. 
and in the early summer of the same year, some four months subsequent to the death of Muriel Grace, a small beginning toward this end was arranged to take place in Chicago. There were to be six delegates from each club, and Selma was unanimously suggested as one of the delegation from the Benham's Women Institute. The opinion was generally expressed that a change would do her good, and there was no question that she was admirably fitted to represent the club. Selma, who had not traveled a hundred miles beyond Benham in her life, was elated at the prospect of the expedition. So much so that she proudly recounted to Lewis the same evening the news of her appointment. It never occurred to her that he would wish to accompany her, and when he presently informed her that he had been wishing to go to Chicago on business for some time, and that the date proposed would suit him admirably, she was dumbfounded. Half of the interest of the expedition would consist in traveling as an independent delegation. A husband would be in the way and spoil the savor of the occasion. It would never do. And so Selma proceeded to explain. She wished to go alone. A pack of six women travel by themselves, blurted Lewis. Suppose there were an accident, he added, after searching his brain for a less feeble argument. We should either be killed or we shouldn't be, said Selma firmly. We are perfectly well able to take care of ourselves. Women travel alone everywhere, every day. That is, intelligent American women. Lewis looked a little sad. I thought perhaps it would seem nice for you to go with me, Selma. We haven't been off since we were married, and I can get away now just as well as not. So it would have been if I weren't one of the delegation. I should think you would see, Lewis, that your coming is out of the question. So it proved. Selma set forth for Chicago on the appointed day, made many new acquaintances among the delegates, and was pleased to be introduced and referred to publicly as Mrs. Selma Babcock, a form of address to which she was unaccustomed at Benham. On the night before her departure, being in pleasant spirits, she told Lewis that her absence would do him good, and that he would appreciate her all the more on her return. She was to be gone a week. The first twenty-four hours passed gloomily for Babcock. Then he began to take notice. He noticed that the country fair was fixed for the following days. He had hoped to carry Selma there, but as she was not to be had, it seemed to him sensible to get what enjoyment from it he could alone. Then it happened that a former companion of his bachelor days and his bachelor habits, a commercial traveler, whom he had not seen since his marriage, appeared on the scene. "'The very man for me!' he ejaculated jubilantly. The obscurity of this remark was presently made clear to his friend, who had hoped perhaps to enjoy a snug evening at Babcock's domestic hearth, but who was not averse to playing a different part, that of cheering up a father who had lost his baby and whose wife had left him in the lurch. He assured Babcock that a regular old-time outing, a shaking up, would do him good, and Babcock was ready to agree with him, intending thereby a free-handed two days at the fair. As has been intimated, his manner of life before marriage had not been irreproachable, but he had been glad of an opportunity to put an end to the mildly riotous and coarse bouts which disfigured his otherwise commonplace existence. He had no intention now of misbehaving himself, but he felt the need of being enlivened. His companion was a man who delighted in what he called a lark, and his only method of ensuring a lark was by starting in with whiskey and keeping it up. That had been also Babcock's former conception of a good time. And though he had dimly in mind that he was now a husband and church member, 
He strove to conduct himself in such a manner as to maintain his self-respect without becoming a spoil-sport. During the first day at the fair, Babcock managed to preserve this nice distinction. On the second, he lost account of his conduct, and by the late afternoon was sauntering with his friend among the booths in the company of two suspicious-looking women. With these same women, the pair of revelers drove off in top buggies just before dusk and vanished in the direction of the open country. End of chapter 6